Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Today, I have an old friend from my hometown, uh, Brian Kolker. Uh, 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 his uh, father uh, is, is a retired uh, doctor. Uh, my father and uh, Dr. Kolker were partners for many years. My father always uh, refers to him as the best doctor he knew uh, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and that carries a lot of weight with me. Um, Brian's a few years younger than me, but his sister was definitely the smartest kid my age I knew. And um, so uh, Brian Kolker, now a grown-up brainiac, uh, he is the CFO of Linea Solutions, a consulting firm in the benefits space. Um, and uh, he leads an organization uh, on, on the finance level uh, with over 100 uh, personnel uh, and he'll tell us all about that. Uh, the reason I wanted to have him on as a guest is uh, because Brian's also really out there about his civic engagement, about his point of view when it comes to public policy and politics um, and uh, what's right and what's wrong. And uh, there's so much wrong in the world. Uh, I have come to uh, really enjoy seeing Brian's posts in social media about what's wrong and what's right. And I have found him to be uh, uh, a new moral compass for me. Uh, not my only moral compass, but but certainly one of them. And so I just, I, I, I thought, you know, one way to have a really interesting conversation with Brian would be to get him on the show. So Brian Kolker, welcome to The Indispensables. Thanks so much, Bruce. And it's great to see you again after so many years, but I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, so, um, so uh, let me ask you: uh, for those who are not familiar with Linea Solutions, or for that matter, what it looks like to do consulting in the benefits space, um, uh, and 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 how does uh, somebody get to where you are uh, running the finance operation for a big consulting or a, a small consulting firm? I guess. Uh, uh, what's your story? Yeah, sure. So. Um, I ended up in the management consulting industry by accident, completely by accident. So, you know, this is a story that we tell new employees. My partner and I have a new employee orientation at least three times a year. We bring the employees in from wherever they are across the U.S. and Canada, spend a couple of days with us. We take them out to dinner. We give them some wine and kind of get to know them and, and let them get to know us. And one of the things we always do is tell them the origin story of the company. And, you know, Akio Tagawa is my partner and I went to graduate school together at UCLA in the nineties. Both of us were getting uh, PhDs in sociology and uh, we ended up deciding to drop out around the same time. And Akio's sister was an IT consultant and she got him a job. And a couple months later, he's like, you know, I can get you a job. And so we worked together for about four or five months. And, you know, we could tell the company, this was during the, the, I don't know if you remember the Y2K project, everybody was trying to remediate bank software to, you know, make sure there wasn't a crash at the, at the turn of the, turn of the century. 
So uh, we could tell that our the business that we were we had uh, were working in wasn't really going anywhere. And so we were like, you know what? I, I found this crazy client who's willing to hire the two of us, but she says we need a business by tomorrow. So we got to come up with a name. You know, we've got to basically come up with a statement of work. We got to do all these things. And it was a, it was already seven o'clock at night. So we'll do this <laughs> by tomorrow. And so, you know, we basically stayed up all night. We happened upon the name Linea Solutions, going through network solutions, looking up different domain names that have been taken. We came across the Italian word for line, which is linea. We were like, you know what? It's four o'clock in the morning. I'm tired. We'll just keep, we'll just stick with that. Linea is fine. So let's just do that. And lo and behold, the next day we had a company and that was what, 24 years ago. So, so, okay. So let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, uh, so, so you, you graduated from uh, Vassar in 92 with a degree yep. in sociology, maybe. Yep. And then you went on to graduate school at UCLA right away. Uh, spent a couple years in the twin cities with, uh, my girlfriend, then girlfriend, now wife. And then we decided after the winter of 1993, after it was 70 below zero, it's time to leave this city. And uh, so I applied to grad school and L.A. seemed like a much warmer place. So out here we went. Oh, it is. That's for sure. And and, and is she a scholar uh, also or uh, a, a management consultant or none of the above? None. Well, she she interestingly enough, and you could have her on the show as well, because her story is a lot more interesting than mine. Um, she uh, got a degree in public health. Uh, she also has a master of fine arts. So she's a writer. And then after the 2016 election, she became a political activist. I mean, we both got heavily involved in politics, which I'm sure we can talk about later. But she's now an elected official for the County Democratic Party in Los Angeles. She's on several boards. So she's really become uh, she's, she's becoming a politician, interestingly enough. Interesting. And so uh, who led the way on the civic engagement? Was that her uh, her leading the way or was that something that was mutual? It was mutual. We really... I mean, we're, we're a really, really strong team in addition to, to being, you know, husband, wife, parents and all that. And, uh, you know, we really share the same vision politically. And both of us were incredibly um, disturbed by the 2016 election and the you know emergence of Donald Trump, even before that, really. The emergence of Donald Trump as sort of a national political figure uh, really freaked both of us out. And so... We realized that, you know, though we've been voters, you know, regular voters, um, that the country needed people of conscience to really stand up at that point. So we felt like it was time to start taking a public stand and really to start figuring out how we could affect change in the country, um, along with raising our kids and running the business and all that other stuff. So, you know, we've been a tad busy. These years. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, but but to go back to graduate school, so you're studying sociology. You were thinking you would be a professor of sociology, I guess. My my yep. my yep. wife is a uh, an academic. My wife uh, went uh, was getting her PhD. She got her PhD in '97 uh, here at Yale. So I, I understand a little bit about what's what that looks like. And um, and I love the fact that in our brief conversation before I started recording, uh, you were all already citing Weber. Uh, so maybe you can explain uh, where you were headed 
uh, with Weber and sociology? And, and if there's any connection to business or is it just that you thought, you know, there's no work in professoring to speak of these days. And uh, so I'm just going to get a job or, or how, was there a connection? And, and what, let's go back to graduate school and what you were doing there and maybe what you learned and carried forward from studying sociology at UCLA. Sure. So um, I was a, Weber, a Weberian sociologist, right? So Max Weber was my guy, I read most of his writing, which was, there's a lot of it. <clears throat> and so his most famous book that I think almost everybody in college ends up reading if they take an intro to sociology course is, of course, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. So Weber is trying to argue that there is an elective affinity between uh, Protestant Christianity and the rise of capitalism as, as an economic system that had to do with, um, you know, partic particular Christian virtues or values about about. Um, not acquiring wealth, but not spending it, investing in business, you know, working extremely hard. There's a number of things. And I think, you know, it's extremely interesting theory, I think, to a, a great extent. You know, it's been it's been pretty well criticized, you know, a century and a quarter later um, for on a number of levels. But nevertheless, I became interested. I've always been interested in religion as a concept ever since I was even a kid. And so. I started to ask the question, well, you know, what about Islam? Is Islam ill-suited to capitalism? I mean, if, if, the, if the contention is that Christianity is well-suited to, towards it, what's the implication for all the other world religions? They're not? Yeah, and, and just to stop you for a second. So for those who are not steeped in Weber, um, uh, this is what might be referred to as the Protestant work ethic. If you've ever yes. heard that term. Uh, right, that's right. where that comes from. And that government is just uh, those forces that have a monopoly on the legitimate use of force in order to create compliance with rules and so on. But that what's really going on here in, the, in, in large parts of the West is wealth accumulation and uh, driven by a Protestant work ethic. And that's something that a lot of people in this country take for granted. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, uh, you know, Weber was interested in kind of the ideological components of Christianity and asking the question, is that really what did it? Was that one of the drivers of history? So. Um, so I became interested in the question of, well, how does Islam work with capitalism? Is, is there no elected affinity? Is there any relationship? So I started studying Arabic with the intention of writing a doctoral thesis on um, Muslim immigrants in Los Angeles, uh, specifically small business owners, and really trying to tease out what within the religion of Islam, basically, is there anything within Islam that, that is seen as a driver of this, the, what we would call the Protestant work ethic. So um, anyway, it was a great idea, but then you know, so my partner and I ended up going to a conference in Toronto and we presented some papers there and we met a lot of other sociologists and both of us sort of realized with a shock that we didn't really fit very well. We didn't really fit in with that community very well. It seemed like most of the sociological work we saw was really dull quantitative or pseudo quantitative work. 
Um, there wasn't a lot of social theory. You know, it just, we felt very much like fish out of water. And both of us became sort of disillusioned at the same time. And we flew back together. And uh, I, both of us were saying, you know, I don't know if I can make a life doing this. I'm not sure I would be happy in this in this job. Like, I, you know, I love the ideas, but, you know, the idea of being a sort of professor in this kind of um, this kind of discipline really doesn't appeal to me much. And it was too late to become a political scientist. Oh, yeah. 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 At that, <laughs> at that point, I think all of us, both of us had also kind of burned out of school entirely. You know, it gets to a point where, you know, if you're a graduate student and you've gone from college to grad school, I mean, that's a lot of years of schooling. And it just gets to the point where you're like, you know, I need a break from this. Yeah. And so, it's, what's interesting to me, though, because the rigor of scholarly uh, enterprise um, and the way it teaches you to think uh, and the way it teaches you to process information and just to look at things um, it, that, that's gotta be something that sticks with you though. Well, yes. So, so your question, you know, what is the connection between being a sociologist and being a management or an IT consultant? And the answer is it's an indirect connection, but consultants are always about breaking things down into problems. Right. And then in figuring out the components of those problems and how to solve them. And so, you know, what we found out, Akio and I, was that, um, you know, we may not have been interested in becoming sociologists, but we certainly had the analytical tools to do very, very well as consultants. And and, you know, it was just a matter of applying those analytical skills to business problems as opposed to more theoretical academic ones. So we just found out that, um, you know, that training, that analytical training really, really, uh, it, it worked really, really well with consulting work, you know, and, and in terms of the other thing that you do as a grad student is you write and write and write and write, and you become very, very effective at communication, which of course, you know, is one of the cornerstones of, of being a good consultant is being a good communicator. And what that means is you communicate, you know how to communicate at the CEO level, you know how to communicate at the management level, you know how to communicate down to line staff, you know how to talk to technical people, non-technical people. Um, you learn to basically change, sort of change your mode of approach, how many details you provide, et cetera, et cetera, based on who you're talking to. And I, I feel like all these things in graduate school were, were relevant, right? These were skills that, that I learned in graduate school, how to do this. Yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, and, and sociology in particular is, um, it has analytical components that I can see how you could apply, but how did you end up then getting job as an IT consultant? And then, so, and, and like, were you always computer savvy? Yeah. So that's the, that's the funny part. Um, so there was a tremendous, you know, early er, when I had just started in this, this other IT company before we started ours, the way Akio and I did it was we were just willing to work about 20 hours a day. And so there was a tremendous amount of self, self-teaching self um, and really 
listening, reading, you know, spending a tremendous amount of time trying to get up to speed on these sort of new areas for us, which would be technology. So, you know, computer savvy, yeah, I was sort of computer savvy, but really I was more interested in business than technology. Always what I mean, always have been. Business I find fascinating for a number of reasons. Just it's just another sort of sociological environment to study, right? Looking at organizations, how people operate in them, you know, how people show up at work, how they view their work, how they go about their work. I, I've, you know, I'm a relentlessly curious person. I always want to know how things work and what people think. And so that sort of drive, that curiosity, um, that's really what allowed me to sort of learn how to consult very, very, very fast. Because it's, a lot of it's just asking questions. And you were already looking at um, uh, entrepreneurs in L.A. and yep. uh, could have been Hindu entrepreneurs, I suppose, yep. or Buddhist entrepreneurs or Jewish entrepreneurs, or yep. it just happened to be Muslim entrepreneurs, um, maybe. Or maybe you happen to know a bunch of Muslim entrepreneurs, so you thought, well, might as well study them. But in any case, what you were looking at was their approach to their enterprise and where their beliefs intersected with yep. their approach to their enterprise. So here you are, uh, you, you, you and your partner, you decide to leave uh, uh, graduate school. Uh, you, you, you got these jobs as IT consultants. You weren't impressed with the uh, operation where you were working. And so can you say anything about this um, magical client who led you to stay up until four o'clock in the morning giving birth to Linea Solutions? Yeah, we, it was actually a subsidiary of uh, Southern California Edison um, that no longer exists. And we were doing, again, it was a Y2K project. And uh, and this, uh, this person, she's not there any longer. In fact, I'm now blanking on her name. It's been so long. But nevertheless, she said, you know, I like you guys. You guys, you work really hard. You're working well with my staff. Um. But, you know, the company you're working with, I'm not getting along with. So I'm just going to hire the two of you, but you need a company by tomorrow. And, and that uh, was probably just parameters that she needed in order to get a purchase order correct. in or whatever. Yep. Yep. So it's basically, she's like, I needed some kind of document with a tax ID number so I can pay you. And, you know, we made it happen. <laughs> and then how long did that project last? And, and what were you were going through and doing Y2K corrections? Yes, that's correct. So uh, that project, we were only there another two months and then she was fired and then we were fired because we worked for her. So very soon after that, we were on our own and we just hustled and got another Y2K gig. And then maybe six months later, we got our first pension client through an old contact. And uh, we've been doing pensions ever since. I mean, that's once we got into the pension industry, we realized this is an area where there are very few subject matter experts. Um, public pension funds in the US uh, are now worth over $5 trillion. So they have huge amounts of assets to be managed, which means that they have a, a virtually unlimited budget for technology projects. And there are very few vendors in the space. So we were like, okay, so this is, these are well-funded clients. 
nobody really seems to know their business. This seems like a good place for us to really bear down, learn how they work. And then the other thing is since most they're, they're public, it means that they're very happy to share referrals. So if we do a good job for one of them, they'll refer us to, to another one. And, uh, you know, that was 24 years ago. <laughs> and we yeah, had- that's amazing. So it was before Y2K came and went that you yeah. found your way into a public pension as a client. And you could see lots of money, uh, plenty of appetite for transformational technology, or, or and, and was the first project a Y2K project? The first one was Y2K, but very quickly we started working on what we call pension administration systems, which is really the customized software used to calculate and pay out pensions to people. That's all it is. So it's a very, think of it as a very customized human resources information system or HRIS. Uh, and, um, and, and so do you, and you have your own proprietary software packages or how does it work? No, no, we over, we oversee the projects. So there are software vendors in the space that we work with, but we're independent. We're independent of, of any one technology. So we're brought in by the clients to help them select a technology and then implement it as project managers, business analysts, sort of staff, staff supplementation when they don't have enough people to help them with the project. They bring us in. And you've grown over time. And I want to talk about uh, some of the engines of your growth, because at least one of them is a little bit counterintuitive. Uh, but uh, so how did you evolve? You you, you started uh, hiring people. Um, and and what did that look like? Were you hiring? So for those who don't know about what, what a business analyst is, it's somebody who interfaces with the end users and tries to figure out what is the outcome they really want. And then you go translate to the people who would do coding or other yep. forms of engineering. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. And do you, do you have engineers or are your folks are, the, are primarily interface uh, analysts? Yeah, that's a great question. So over the years, we've recruited people from a couple different camps, right? One uh, sort of one area for us would be people who understand the technologies, technologists. So we're talking about people who have computer science background, programming background, who are mainframe programmers, who really come from the technology world. The other camp that we recruit from are people who understand the business itself. So people who've worked for pension funds people who've been customer service agents for, pe- for pension funds, um, people who've been uh, technology directors for pension funds. And since, since uh, about eight years ago, we also got into the workers' compensation space. Um, so we're doing the same thing uh, uh, for workers' compensation funds as well. And we hire, again, we hire people who have been on the software side, people who come from the workers' comp industry itself, uh, et cetera. So we have experts in both business and in technology. And for those who are trying to envision what would these projects look like, can you give a simple example that would make it clear to someone like, what is the value add that Linea Solutions delivers to a pension fund or, or a workers' compensation fund? Sure. So if a pension fund is working on a mainframe system, for, for a system that calculates and pays out benefits to their retirees. And this system has been in place for 30 years. It's aging out. There's not enough people who know how to, how to fix it. 
And uh, it doesn't allow them to do some of the things that, you know, retirees expect, like being able to interface online, having a good mobile application for them to use, um, you know, just some, some of the kind of customer service demands that, that you know, uh, any kind of financial institution would have today. So the pension funds are usually, the staff size is very small. So they may only have 30 or 40 people for, for a $10 billion fund, right? With, an, with something like 25,000 retirees or 30,000 retirees. So what they would bring us to do, in to do is to, is to help them understand what solutions are out there in the marketplace. So if we need to replace our old software, what is examples of new software that we can purchase? They would also look to us to say, how long is it going to take to do this project? How much is it going to cost? What kind of resources do we need to bring in to be successful doing this? Um, what kind of risks are there? You know, if we transition from this old system to a new system, could we end up um, creating problems? Like, could we mess up paying people for a month or something like that? So our job is really to be advisors to them, to help guide them through the process of, of selecting new software and then acting as sort of shepherds through the whole implementation. These implementations are very long. They're usually four or five years because they have to, they have to not only in, put in new software, they have to convert the old data to the, to the new format. They have to stand up a new system, yep. migrate everything without having a day where nobody can access their information or get their money. Right. Correct. So very uh, high risk transaction. You know, these, the, the, their monthly payrolls where they're paying retirees can be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. So a lot, a lot of money at stake um, and it's people's livelihoods, right? You know, if a retiree, that check, they live on that check. They, they pay rent with that check. Most of the public pension funds, um, you know, these are, these are middle-class retirees, right? These are civil service workers. Maybe they're getting 4,000 a month, 5,000 a month, um, plus a healthcare subsidy. So for them, um, you know, these are not these are not high net worth people. These are these are people who who need this to pay their uh, to pay their mortgage and, and things like that. So, and, and and then do you folks do project manage the the yeah. the consultants who come in? So you so some of your folks are project managing. Yep. Um, and that's the value add. And then that's so the you, you come in at the front end, you say, well, here's here's probably where you should go. Here are some options. Uh, we can help you uh, take this process all the way to the end where the implementation is done, the right. testing has been done, the fallout has been managed, uh, all the people who are angry are angry at us, and then we leave. Yep, that's it. <laughs> um, I've been through a few implementations with clients, and I am always um, on the sidelines watching people suffer. So uh, so I, I suppose, you know, the best consultants in, in, in technology migration are the ones who uh, minimize the suffering. Yeah, they're, they're very, very difficult projects. They're, they're hard on staff. Um, there's usually some turnover because there's a lot of people who understood the old system. They don't really particularly want to learn a new system, especially people who've, you know, who've been around for 20, 25 years. They might say, you know, this is an opportune time for me to retire and get, draw my pension. So they're, right. they're, they're tough projects because, you know, they have to keep the lights on as they're doing these projects. They have to keep paying people, providing good customer service. 
um, et cetera. And then they have these big projects to do in the background. So they're, they're tough projects. So they, they really do need the help of an advisor. They need project managers and, and business analysts and testers to help them get through it successfully. That's what we Yeah, do. fantastic. Um, and so, so this has evolved as a business. You've grown naturally, I'm sure, as you've had more work to do. You've needed to increase your productive capacity. So you were hiring steadily along the way. And as uh, as that occurred, you became more and more of a leader. You pointed out um, in in uh, our earlier advanced conversation um, in writing that um, you have a high awareness of the profound responsibility that comes with having power in relation to other people's careers and livelihoods. Can you talk about the evolution of that mindset in, 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 in your own career and how you have grown into a responsible leader for those who, you know, go home uh, and have dinner with their family and talk about their boss's boss's boss and they're talking about you? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the things that's been so rewarding about having your own, you know, having my own business with my partner is... You, when you start as a when you start a consulting firm, you're a consultant. Those are the people that start consulting firms. Pretty obvious, right? But as the firm grows, you have to go from consultant to manager, right? You have to manage other consultants, which is an entirely different skill set than consulting. Right? Consulting, you're breaking down problems, you're writing requirements documents, you're writing strategy documents, you're giving presentations. Right. Management is really about um, overseeing other people's work, being coaches for them, you know, providing people constructive feedback and things like that. So that's kind of stage one in your development as an entrepreneur is going from consultant to manager. But as your company grows and as you grow as a manager, you make a big, even arguably a bigger transition, which is from manager to leader. And Developing into a leader, I don't know if there's a blueprint for it, but in my case, I think it was really driven by my own values. And this is kind of where my civic life and political life and business life all seem to intersect. Um, Because at a certain point, I kind of realized it was okay to be the same person at work that I was at home and to have those opinions and to have those values and bring that passion that I have for, you know, for politics and for you know where I think the country should be going. Um, it's okay to bring that to work now with a very strong caveat that at work, you have to be respectful that there are people who don't share your opinion, but to, to have values, you are allowed to have, values at work, your own values. <laughs> right. And I think if you're going to be an effective leader, um, those people lead with their values and they're very clear what their values are. So in my case, you know, Linear Solutions is a very employee centered company. So what that means to me is that at the end of the day, it's really our employees that come first. They come before profit. They come before client. It's um, it's it's about creating an environment where people are valued, 
um, where they're listened to, where they have a voice, um, where there's a respect for people's private life as well as for their work life. So becoming an employee-centered company was something that was very congruent with my values. The way I feel about civics is very much how I feel about business in terms of the, the worth of the individual and the respect that you have to have for, for people's um, sort of personhood, I guess. Yeah. And, and, and I, I like that. And I'm very interested in that. Of course, I write books about leadership and so on and work with a lot of organizations on those subjects. And I think there's always a tension between, you know, as an employer, you're, you're trying to get people to do a bunch of work very well, very fast, all day long with a, with a smile on their face. And you're also trying to help them meet their needs both at work. And then, you know, most people don't work for kicks. They work because they have to feed their family. Uh, And so it's, you know, you're navigating those sometimes competing interests. And maybe uh, if you're really a, um, a responsible leader, you're trying to align those interests so that there's not as much tension between those interests. I mean, typically you'd think of, um, you know, the employer wants to get as much work out of every person as they can at a high quality with the lowest cost. And the employee wants to get as much reward as they possibly can and uh, have as much sort of latitude and flexibility as they can have. And as a manager, you're trying to navigate that. But do you see that tension and experience that tension? And if so, how do you how do you manage it or uh or do you somehow manage to avoid that tension and drive more alignment? I think, um, I feel like the way we handle that is we hire people that really are really passionate about consulting work, right? So we have people who they want to work. They want to do this work. There's no... We don't need to push them to want to be good problem solvers or to want to please the client. We don't have to push them to do that. They want to do that. What we try to do is we try to create an environment where they get to experience new challenges, right? We, we don't want to make people do the same thing over and over and over again, because most people are not comfortable. Most, Especially most good consultants don't want to do the same kind of projects over and over and over again. Some people are okay with it and that's fine. But I think the majority of people want new challenges. They want to move forward in their careers. They want new skills. So we have um, a a professional development department, for lack of a better term, and professional development managers that are assigned to each person. And their job is really to be a career coach and an advocate for them within the company. So people need or saying, look, you know, I've, I've done this kind of consulting work before, but I want to get into cybersecurity because we have a cybersecurity company as well that's, that work, that's part of Lenny Solutions. So we talk about how, how do we make that happen? What are the courses you need to take um, to do that? What kind of additional training do you need? Um, here are the people that you should talk to. So we have a lot of conversations like that. And, and, and just for perspective, how many employees? Oh, do we, have, have- we, have about we have about 125. And how many people are assisting them with professional development? Uh, right now, we have 
I believe five and by next year, we'll, I think we'll have eight. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a substantial ratio. Uh, yeah. that uh, says a lot right there about that ratio of professional development professionals, um, to overall staff. Uh, that's a, must be a big pro- priority for you. And, and yeah. does, it, does it bear out in retention and in execution and so on? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Our, our retention rate is over 92% wow. year over year. And that's an average over five years. Yeah, so, and that's in today's environment. Yes, correct. Um, and, and you said you don't have a hard time getting people who are uh, good consultants who are into consulting. Right. Um, so I'm guessing maybe you sell this part of your culture in the recruiting process as well. We do. We, we, you know, we take tremendous pride in our culture, our company culture, and we've invested. That's actually, you know, two, two transformational things happened to us in the last three years. One was COVID, which transformed everybody, obviously, sure. transformed every company, right? So we went from a company where people travel 80% time to zero. And as uh, leaders, we were very concerned about how isolated our employees were. So Absolutely. We, I mean, that was something everyone in, in, in the world was grappling with, more yes. or less. Absolutely. So... We started doing things we'd never done before. We started having, um, first we had, I think we were having meetings twice a week, all company meetings via Zoom, which we had never done before. And my business partner became very quickly became an expert in uh, what was happening with the COVID response. So he would put together these decks. You know, he was constantly studying the CDC website, all these other things. So he was providing as much real-time information as possible in his you know, very good consultant way, trying to tell people the latest science on what we knew about the pandemic, um, what the real risks were. Now, this is, this is pre, pre-immunizations, you know, right. pre, sorry, pre-vaccines. So, you know, we're, you know the, this question of whether or not you could get sick from, from the grocery bags. You remember that when people were, were oh, yeah. stuff on everything. So we did that. And we started, you know, really emphasizing as much interaction as we could have as a company as possible. So people didn't feel alone. We, we were constantly surveying our employees to say, how are you feeling today versus last week? We, would, we, would, we did the survey for like a, a year, a weekly survey wow. on just people's psychological state and how they were feeling. And so... And of course, that's good data, but it also feels good to have the leaders of your yes. organization asking that question. Yes, it, it, it really it did. And, and we, made, we, we started having virtual coffee breaks. We did one on one conversations. We just we basically made the sort of psychological resilience of our company our most important mission, essentially, other, other than the obvious, you know, making sure our projects kept going and things like that. But in the background, we were doing, in, in some ways, you could say we were doing a lot of parenting uh, and just trying to make sure our people were okay. Yeah. And I mean, I think sometimes when I, um, I had a chapter in an earlier edition of a book where I talk about in loco parentis management. And on the one hand, <clears throat> that sounds maybe a diminishing of employees or it sounds condescending. Um, but the reason I liked that term 
uh, is because who do you care more about than your kids? And when you're in a leadership role, you do have power in relation to someone's career and livelihood. And so it, it was my way of saying, you know, be a strong, highly engaged leader. But that doesn't mean be a jerk. It means be caring, be supportive, lift people up. Uh, and you do have authority in that relationship. It's okay to own it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty lighthearted person. I'm known for joking and all that. But, you know, I'm pretty deadly serious about sort of the employer-employee relationship in terms of what I feel is I've even used the term sort of, it's almost a sacred responsibility. I agree with that. The, the code of ethics that employers are really supposed to have, how you treat people. And it doesn't mean you, you, you know, there are people, we have to let people go that, that don't work out, but how you do that matters and people will never forget it. They never forget mm -hmm. being treated well and they never forget being treated badly. So well said. And, uh, you know, whenever we've screwed up, which we obviously do, you know, we always circle back, my partner and I, and we talk to the people involved and say, where did we get this wrong? Like, why did this person feel that way? And they said, like, you know, they felt like we didn't communicate with them until it was too late or something like that. So we're, we try to learn from our mistakes and, and move forward, but those ethics are always in place. So anyway, so, so the pandemic was thing one that transformed us. The, believe it or not, horribly, the murder of George Floyd was the second one. Interesting. So um, as you, I'm sure you remember, so, so George Floyd was murdered in the, the summer of 2020 and it spawned, you know, it's, it feels like it was so long ago already. Uh, it spawned really a, a resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And there was sort of a civic uprising, not, not a violent one, but, but especially with younger people where, um, you know, it, it was sort of a cultural moment. And because it was in the middle of the pandemic and we were talking to each other so much, we really got to hear how profoundly disturbed people were by, by what had happened to George Floyd. And, you know, at that point, you know, we did not have, a, we did not have a lot of um, African-American employees or, or employees from the black community. Um, and we, you know, again, ended up having one-on-one -on -one conversations with, with, with those employees just to ask how people were doing and saying like, you're, you're, you're free not to have, you don't have to discuss this with us if you're not, if you don't want to, but we just want to check in with you because this has been a very traumatic, you know, experience. Yeah. And, and, and it is, you know, for regardless of those who object to this fact, it is a different thing to experience that if you happen to be a person of color. I mean, yeah. those, uh, so it just, that's just the way it is. Yeah. So, so exactly. And we felt like, you know, again, this is the sociological background since we, you know, we studied affinity groups and race and gender and sociology all the time. Um, Akia and I basically sat back and said, you know, if we don't say anything as a company and we don't stand for anything as a company in regards to Black Lives Matter and, and this particular, like just basically a, a lynching on television, what does that say about us? Like in, in business, I, I understand that, that, you know, 
in business, a lot of people say, you know, you don't discuss religion, you don't discuss politics, that, you know, people are, it, it, your, your workforce is diverse and people are not necessarily comfortable talking about those kind of values and those kind of positions. And you want people to be comfortable. We understand all that. And that's the way we were up until that point. You know, both my partner and I are, are both, you know, pretty strong Democrats and, and donate to democratic causes and all that. But we never discussed it at work. We never discussed politics at work. Um, and we certainly never made our employees feel like it was important for them to be, you know, on one side or the other politically. But, you know, during the, one of the problems with that position is if you never take a stand politically as a company, what you're basically saying is the status quo is fine. Right? You're, you're saying that everything in the, in the country, the way it is, is okay with us because that's the only implication. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly the case that you're not um, actively speaking out about things that should change. Right. Right. And, the, and, and, who, and who, who is that benefiting? Absolutely. So when we, you know, when we looked at our, our black community members on these calls, we started to think, what are they taking from this silence that Akio and I have? What's the message to, to, our, to our employees of color? The implication is we're either too cowardly to say what we think, or we don't really care. Well, neither of those things are true. Right. Or we think it's none of our business, which right. is what a lot of, li and literally in this case, none of our business. Right. Not yeah, exactly. And we think those two things are completely separate. Right. But we said, I mean, I, I think, again, this comes back to our personal values. I think Akio and I personally were moved enough that we were like, well, this is we're, we're not going to just say silent as this silent about this as a business. So we looked at and, and that's where we started our diversity, equity, inclusion and access kind of program within the company. And we felt like, you know, as people who are privileged, who have a business, that we have a voice and we have a role in civic society. We have, a, we have something to say and we're not just going to be neutral. We're going to say, this is what we think. You know, um, we were horrified what happened to George Floyd and we don't think it's okay. And we don't think that the current power structure is okay. So... We surveyed our employees again and wanted to know, well, what do you think? Like, we, we feel like we need to say something and do something. And lo and behold, we found out that people were very on board with the, with the company taking a stand. Interesting. That it, it was, it really resonated. And the for our employees of color, it was a very, very big deal to them that we were wanting to have these conversations that we were willing to make public statements and that we were like, you know, we're not just going to be silent or neutral. And like, and, and did you get any blowback from any of your clients? No, that's, that's good. Cause, cause some, you know, th there are some clients who, who would push back on that. Um, I'm interested in how this translated into a diversity, equity and inclusion program for you. So, I think the, the way we connected those two things was if we want to make a difference in the black community at that, at that point, the question was the black community after George Floyd was hurting. 
I mean, I, I think that's, sure. again, it's been, you know, over three, it's been three years. It's easy to forget. But the question is, what can we do as a company for the black community to basically show some kind of alliance or that we care that, you know, this matters to us? And the first thing we said was, you know, we're not a very diverse company. Like we don't have a lot of people of color working for us. And why is that? Like, why, how has that happened? And so fortunately we work, we have a very, very talented recruiter on staff who worked for Accenture for years. And she actually knew quite a bit about diversity in hiring. And so once we started asking the question, we were like, huh, okay. So one thing we can do is pay a lot more attention to who we're hiring and try to give opportunities for people who we have not in the past and start looking at people's backgrounds in terms of going to schools that we don't know as well, like the historically black colleges and things like that. And we can become much more um, open to people of color, uh, not just, you know, bringing them in. That's, that's the D, the DEIA, the D is for diversity. So you make it more diverse. That's great. But once your workforce is more diverse, then what? Well, then you have equity, you have inclusion and you have access, right? Equity is making sure you feel like opportunities. Um, everyone's getting opportunities to do uh, different things within the company, opportunities to get into management if that's what they want to do. And that, of course, the I is everyone feels included. And that's everyone. That's not just people of color within your company. It's everybody. People Absolutely. Maybe a little shy, who, you know, don't necessarily feel like doing a lot of the social interaction. They feel welcome. So... Um, we started to really, I, I would say we put our, started to put our culture front and center and we found out that people were very interested in participating in this new way, like not just business, but also, you know, really believing in transforming the company to make it much more welcoming to, to people of color, but then within the company of also making it a much more psychologically rewarding place to work, actually building a sense of community other than just like, well, we're a business organization. We're also a community of people, a growing, a actually a much more diverse group of people now. And it's okay for people to have values at work and to talk about things that matter to them. So we have a community service subcommittee within DEIA. We have a philanthropy committee who did research. So the company is now making, you know, fairly substantial contributions to social justice organizations on an annual basis. And our employees are the ones doing the research on who to give that, who to give those uh, contributions to. So, so it turns out, by the way, at least in my experience, regardless of the different elements of diversity that can be reflected in an organization, if you start practicing inclusion in terms of, you know, one person at a time, one day at a time, really trying to tune into individuals, figure out where they are, meet them where they are, bring them along, um, talk to them in ways that are meaningful for them, uh, about things that are meaningful to them, uh, you find out uh, even in an organization that doesn't look diverse, turns out everybody's a special case. The, the organization's maybe not diverse in one way or another way, but, oh, it's diverse. If you got a bunch of people, there's more diversity than you may realize, right? That's right. 
Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And, you know, one of the things that I try to emphasize, especially to the, uh, the members of our company who've been around a long time, who definitely predated our diversity, equity, inclusion committee, who may not be as much on board with it, is I try to emphasize to them, inclusion means you too. That just because you're, you're, you may not be comfortable with some of the diversity language, which is new to you, you know, being able to, you know, talking about Black Lives Matter and things like that. Not everybody's comfortable with that. In fact, quite a few people are not. We try to tell them is that's fine. You don't, we're not telling you you have to suddenly transform yourself and become, you know, uh, uh, very comfortable in, the, in these conversations. But the, the point is, everyone should feel included. Employees that have a strong feeling about Black Lives Matter should feel included in the company. You should feel included in the company. Equity and equity too affects everyone, right? Equity is everyone being treated fairly. That's you as well. So yeah, absolutely. Really- I think you know one of the things I've learned from working with DEI folks in various organizations is the the best way to get a, a more people on board is to put inclusion first. I, I, I always call it inclusion, equity, and diversity because regardless of who's working with you, um, you know, it's shocking how often leaders, managers, and supervisors don't really know the people upon whom they're depending to get a whole bunch of work done. Yep. Yeah, absolutely true. And if you couple that with, you know, creating these professional de- development managers to create even more um, opportunities for people to, to get uh, professional advice in their careers and have people advocating for them within the company, which of course supports equity, right? Because now everybody has an, has an advocate. Mm-hmm. All these things working together has basically transformed the company. So we've, you know, since the pandemic, we've almost tripled in size in size and i assume you're not doing that for kicks but to staff a bunch of work you got uh yeah Yeah. and and we're you know by being able to lead with culture our recruiter you know she's able to talk to some really good people and and people are very interested in in joining a people-centered organization you know we've also done you know we've very much enhanced our benefits package as well. We have a four month paid family leave, parental leave as well. Wow. Um, we've made very strong commitments to ensuring that people who go out on paternity and maternity care, um, that they are uh, not penalized in any way in terms of career advancement. <clears throat> We're starting a childcare subsidy uh, probably next year. Uh, you know, a monthly subsidy for people who have kids under the age of five to help with healthcare costs. So, um, you know, we've also put our sort of money where our mouth is in terms of on the benefits side. But again, 92% retention rate, I, I think in professional services is unheard of. I mean, that just- yeah. And what you're, what you're demonstrating is that by investing more in taking care of people, you're, I'm guessing you're going to keep more high performers. You're going to have fewer costs related to uh, turnover. You're going to have fewer 
breaks in continuity of service for your clients and customers, fewer unnecessary problems. Uh, so, you know, you, you might make yourself into a case study um, and uh, maybe you'll dust off some of your sociology chops and write about it. Yeah, I know that Susan, Susan, my wife is always saying, no, you really should write some, you should write an article for Harvard Business Review uh, about X, Y, Z. But Ooh, um, that's a good idea. And yeah, uh, I, 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 I might, I might help you gin that up by turning this interview into an article in our Forbes column. So, um, yeah, I, I just think it's, uh, oh, the other, there's one very, very important side benefit of this is we've been getting a ton of referrals from our own employees. So in terms of the recruitment side, being able to find these people is vastly simpler when, when the employees are incredibly happy. Right. Because they're yeah, right. In. I mean, if you want to have an employee referral program, you can pay uh, uh, a bounty for uh, referrals. But in fact, nobody's going to ask their pal, hey, come work here unless they really like the job and like the company. Right. right. Exactly right. And we, and we do both. Right. We provide a bounty. Plus, you know, hopefully we make the employee experience good enough that people really want to do it. And we've I mean, we've had. I don't know, it must be at least 25% of our new employees must be referrals, maybe higher. It might be closer to 40 or 50%, but it's a lot. We get a lot. That's really fantastic. And so you are uh, telling a story about uh, an accidental consulting firm that has now grown by threefold in the last number of years as a result of a sequence of tragedies uh, to which you responded with not just business acumen, but with uh, your civic values at the forefront. And, um, and, and it sounds like it's paying off. Yeah, I mean, it really, it, it's been a remarkable few years. I never, ever would have predicted this path for the company. I never would have predicted this path for me personally in terms of, you know, saying black lives matter or discussing that in an all company meeting seemed impossible five years ago. Um, but, uh, lo and behold, that is, you know, that's where we are in 2023. <laughs> well, Brian Kolker, CFO of Linear Solutions. Thank you for being a guest on the indispensables. Thank you so much, Bruce. I really appreciate the opportunity. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.